Ron DeSantis. If Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war here soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away, or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong, hey, I'm so sorry, yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars in debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the compounded interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla. Scott, we are right in the heart of major season. It's US Open Week. Course looks beautiful. LA Country Club. You feeling it? Yeah, that's a, it's a Father's Day tradition is watching the U.S. Open on Sunday. You know, I love how you can always predict. You know, you know that part of the count calendar. I mean, they've kind of rearranged the PGA on us. You know, the PGA was always last when I was growing up. But uh, yeah, it, it's a tradition all its own this week. The U.S. Open. I don't know about you, but for me, growing up. I think the U.S. Open was probably my favorite major. Um, I uh, I liked when the U- the USGA really kind of let it get away from them a bit and it got out of control and you had scores that were at or near par. I liked when you saw – I liked when par was a good score. You know, I liked seeing these guys having to struggle a bit. Um, and it's just so fun to see the best golfers in the world have to chip it back into the fairway. And maybe I'm wrong in that. And a lot of the players don't like how the USGA sets up golf tournaments. But, man, this one's always been one of my favorites, just the way that they set up a golf course. I don't know if you – this might have been before your time, but Tom Kite won at Pebble Beach, I think, with a plus one. That yeah. was definitely before my time, at least before my time of watching golf. Yeah, I think um, obviously Tiger, you know – had a big moment there where, you know, he, he won before he ended up having the surgery and you could tell he was just hobbling. You're talking about a Tory uh, when he took that Rocco mediate. Yes. That was a classic. I mean, uh, that one, he had a full 18 hole playoff, then had to go to an additional sudden death hole with Rocco mediate. I mean, God, that was a memorable one. I still remember I was working the Sunday lunch shift at my dad's restaurant when tiger um, birdied 18 to get into the playoff because he hit a bad tee shot. No, he had a good tee shot, a bad layup in the rough right, and hit a wedge to like 20 feet or 15 feet and made a putt. And, I mean, I just – my dad was like, anyone seen Tim? And I'm hiding in the corner watching the TV because I just couldn't look away. 
You know, actually, we went uh, we went to Carabas, you know, this Friday night um, for my brother-in-law's birthday. So, yeah, I'm sure it's been, you know, quite a few years since you've uh, been involved, you know, with that particular one. But uh, it was a good meal. Good time was had by all. Yeah, actually, the guy who runs that one now used to be uh, my boss when I was in college in San Antonio. I worked at his Carabas. Uh, my dad got promoted. That guy moved to Houston, took over my dad's restaurant. Rented my parents' house from them, saw my dad's truck, and then went and bought the exact same thing from Norman Frady Chevrolet. It's like, what the hell? You just take over my dad's life? What's going on here, Tom? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. We um, so yeah, U.S. Opens this week. Obviously, you know, um, if you listen to yesterday's show right at the end, Tim teased that we're we're still trying to uh, still trying to get my bag sorted out. And, you know, one of the things, and, and I was telling Tim today, actually, I went by, uh, I'll, I'll give him a shout out, PXG. Um, my ear, nose, and throat doctor is actually, uh, I don't know if you know where the, uh, the, the Six Flags water park is, north of Houston. Yeah, it, it didn't used to be Six Flags. We used to go there all the time when I was a kid. So the doctor's office is like right past that. So that's how far I'm driving from Clear Lake. And I've been driving there almost daily because they had me do like a sleep study and, you know, it didn't take. But I was like, you know what? This PXG is on Westheimer. Normally, I would not drive from Clear Lake all the way to Westheimer. But you know what? Now that I'm on the north side, it's like, okay, I'll go in and pop over there. And they gave me the same, in fact, better technology than what the store in League City had. It was a free fitting. Now, just for irons, they didn't do woods, but the guy would pretty much, I talked to him, he didn't write down, because uh, I forwarded the email to Tim. Uh, he didn't actually write down anything official, but he talked about the fact, you know, based on what I see from your swing, you know, this is the driver I would put you in. So he actually, you know, did kind of a free one. And, you know, those clubs, you know, they look nice. They feel solid. Uh, and, and it was kind of a different experience because they're obviously only selling PXG. So it's not like he's like, you know, let's see what expensive club I can put this guy in. Well, let's, you know, let's do, you know, yeah, obviously, you know, cause like the other place is like all oh, ping drivers. Yeah. That's all we got right now. It's like, okay. It's going to seem kind of weird, but. All right, and we'll go along with it. So it was, a, and, and he he went over data because um, not only we're we talking about distance, we're talking about you know how much loft am I getting on it, you know what swing path am I coming in on, uh, and then they had a like a a part where you can look at what kind of contact you're making. It was a, a decimal. He said one point four was like the target. Talk so, about smash factor. I, yeah, that might have been it. I don't know. One point one point five is like perfect, but if you're in one point four range, it's you're in a good spot. Yeah. So he's just sitting there showing me all the different irons. He so he's he's showing me, and so I'm hitting just a seven iron, and so you know I'm starting to hit that seven iron, you know, on an average up to one forty five, which you know, it's not great, but it's about ten yards further and. Um, and I'm, I'm getting, yeah, and obviously 
I'm I'm doing you know my spray. He, he showed me also my spray chart. I wasn't spraying the ball really at all, you know, except for, um, there's a couple of times he tried to put me in a stiff shaft and that, that didn't, you know, that wasn't working. But, uh, whenever he was putting me in with regular flex, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there, you're probably an average size of a green. I'm hitting the green every time. So it's, yeah, a lot of people don't know a lot about PXG because they don't sell their clubs in golf galaxy in PGA superstore, right? They are, going to be sold exclusively in a PXG store or if you don't live near a PXG store you can you can get a free fitting over the phone and they'll fit you that way um, but they make a fantastic product and when PXG came out they were the most expensive golf clubs you could get you know they have a thousand dollar driver but now they've come out with the 0211 line which is a budget line and it, they're fantastic golf clubs. And the only difference is they're not forged. They're cast, which I wouldn't put you in a forged iron right now anyway. Well, that's what they, yeah. And, and they were not, I mean, the guy was good. He was like, basically, what are you looking to spend? And so I told him about 500. And they didn't get me exactly there, but. But here's the thing with PXG, to- Scott. They're going to do, I guarantee you, a July 4th sale. They're going to do a Father's Day sale. If you follow PXG, they knock those things down to like 75 bucks a club on the irons. And then all of a sudden you can put your set together, you know, six through pitching weds for that $500 mark. Yeah. And so I think they, the price that was quoted was the five through the gap wedge. Yeah. I think was the one I said to you. And, and the thing is, I, I, I haven't hit my four iron in well over a year. Um, so it's like, I don't even know why it's in my bag. Which is what's so funny is how, you know, golf changes. I mean, I remember having a one iron and hitting it well back in high school. But now, I, you know, I can't even hit that four iron, really. Uh, the five iron, I hit a lot. And so, you know, I, I've gotten, okay, you know, to where the point is okay, especially since it's probably my layup club. And so, you know, I don't have to worry about loft or anything like that. I mean, I'm just using it to hit the ball down the fairway. But, um, yeah, I mean, and it felt solid. And that's the most important thing, I think, is the feel of the club. If you feel like, you know, you've hit a good shot. Because that worst thing, the worst shots are, you know, and and you've felt this, is when you know you've mishit it. And it just, you know, or, or, you know, you – the worst thing is like if you happen to be playing and it's like 30 degrees and you hit it thin. Yeah. The old uh, hand stinger. Yeah. You just, you're not feeling good. So, but you know, one of the things I, I came on, I had this idea and we're kind of cleaning out our garage and my parents did this thing where it's like, okay, all the baseball cards that we have been keeping at our house, they're in your garage now. So I took them out of the garage and, you know, starting to organize them. And I got, you know, I got some pretty good cards in there. And so I'm thinking, you know, maybe I could sell my collection for enough to get the irons. So to update you, I actually called the guy that was going to possibly buy my collection. And what it looks like they want to do is they want to do a consignment. Mm, you don't uh, want that. Well, but the thing is, they don't want anything past 1980 which pretty much knocks out about 98% of my collection 
So, like, I, I literally stopped collecting in 91 because that would have been my sophomore year in high school. It's like, okay, this is not. But I guess, you know, the funny thing about collectibles, because I know you, you, know, you have a collection of your own things, is I think, number one, it taught me a very important economics lesson. Because when I was a kid, I re- religiously, I, I subscribed to Beckett monthly. Um, and, you know, you had read the articles and the articles back in the 80s, you know, when I'm uh, like in my early teens. Seemed cool. Now I'm kind of laughing at them um, because, you know, I think remember one we're talking about Eric Davis where he's they're like, um, I don't know if you remember Eric Davis at all. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, like, uh, I met him a few times. His son used to play um, in the Fort Bend area when I was calling high school games. So he was a he was huge in the eighties, and so I remember them. They wrote a, a article about who could win the triple crown, and and so they talked. Well, he's got three hundred. He could three hundred bat speed, maybe three forty bat speed, maybe three seventy bat speed. You're like, whoa, 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 hold, hold, you know, hold the hold the farm here. You know, I don't know what you guys are talking about, but um. But the thing is, Beckett would always sit there and they would have your guide. And I remember, like, I remember having a Mark McGuire rookie, uh, that 85 tops. And I remember it being like 20 bucks, Beckett would say. So I remember going into, we actually had a baseball card store. Um, well, let me see. I have to go back to your, you remember where the Coliseum was? Yeah. But, so. Another, he actually graduated with one of the people that uh, ran that restaurant. Um, but anyway, so back in that kind of area where you have like all those kind of stores in the back, they used to have a baseball card shop. And I remember going there, taking my card over there, and guy's like, I'll give you five bucks for it. And I said, well, yeah, but it says here's worth 20. And that's where you learn the toughest economic lesson ever in that the stuff that, you know, it's only worth what somebody's willing to give you for it. And that's, that's the hard lesson. And so when I talked to this guy on the, you know, on the line, he basically said, you know, you have no idea how many times we hear your story. If I was collecting in the eighties, I have all these cards. They're basically worthless. Yep. So I, I, I have, a, I found that collecting in the nineties, collecting in the nineties, those cards are basically worthless, man. Like, I thought I was going to retire on my baseball card collection one day. Like as a kid, I loved it. And then like I, you know, I was working with a buddy of mine who collects now um, and kind of learned more about the card collecting game. And it's like, there are cards that were made within the last two years that are worth more than my entire collection. Yeah. The the way cards are done nowadays are just so different. I always thought you wanted the, the rookie card, the older one, in pristine condition. You know, I had, I had so many first releases, so many rookie cards of guys that are now Hall of Famers. You know, I, I had, I had Jeter's rookie card. I still remember when I pulled that one. I was like, this is, this is gonna be worth something someday. And they're all maybe five bucks each or something like that. Now, what's funny is, is I decided, and I just did this for the fun of it. Uh, one of the things that my parents brought over, they they brought over a box of 91 tops the wax you know the um so there's like i guess 36 packs in there 
And I was like, you know what? This box is probably worth 10 bucks. It's worth it to me just to open it up, just to see, you know, just to have the thrill of, you know, can I find something? So, you know, I found a Frank Thomas, which would have been pretty close to his rookie, you know, rookie card. I've, I got a Bagwell. I've got a Pudge Rodriguez. So I'm like, okay, you know, it did okay. But, no, but yeah, nothing's in there. But I think what it did for me, and so this is where, you know, the two parts of the whole collection thing, because there's like what it's worth economically, and then there's what does it mean to you? It's how I originally got into numbers because you start looking at the back of those baseball cards and you start memorizing, you know, what these guys are doing. You start memorizing that, you know, Tony Gwynn hits 394 and uh, 1994. You start to memorize, you know, that, you know, McGuire hit 49 home runs in 1987, breaks, breaks the rookie record. You start, you know, memorizing, of course, you know, Brady Anderson, we know he was cheating, but hit 50 home runs, you know, the one year in Baltimore. And you start memorizing all this stuff and, and these numbers start, you know, and so that literally, you know, got me started on the whole sabermetrics thing, which is something that sustained me in adulthood in terms of interest in the game of baseball. So the cards aren't worth anything monetarily. I mean, I could probably get 100, 200 for some of my older ones combined. But, and really when I was thinking about it, I was like, if I could get 500 for the whole thing, for the whole collection, I said, I'd do it. I'd, you know, do it right now. Um, but the other thing, and I know, and, and I get to where, um, what I've been collecting now is I, I am a, trying to think, I think I am one or two teams short from having a hat from every team. At least one cap from every team. And I'll collect the old ones. Like I got, I found a St. Louis Browns cap. I, ca I found an Expos cap. Uh, I got a Kansas City A's cap. Um, so, I mean, I'll collect those old caps. I've got, you know, some old Sox cap, White Sox caps. So now I collect, you know, and those things aren't worth anything. Uh, but, you know, I'll wear them out on the golf course just, you know, for fun. People are like, well, why in the hell are you wearing that old, you know, Detroit Tigers cap. Well, whatever, you know, just kind of felt like it today. Um, I think one of the fun things with collecting, you know, especially, you know, like they'll use baseball cards as an example is, is looking back through them and having the memories of those seasons, right. Is, is as a fan looking back, remembering Brady Anderson, like you said, or, or looking back and remembering how thinking about how good Tom Glavin was or Smoltz or some of these other guys, or, or even, you know, with the hats, when, when you look at every hat, you remember, uh, this is the game where I got this hat. You know, I, when I visit a major league stadium, I like to get a hat. And it, it just kind of jogs your memory and, and, and lets you enjoy that memory again every time you look at it or put it on. Uh, and for me, that's why I love collecting golf clubs. You know, there's every club I, I grab is something that either I played previously or I wanted it and it was too expensive then. But now it's, it's only 25 bucks now because it's 30 years later. Um, but it's those little, those, those memories that come back to you when you look down on it or when you look at a card or put on a hat, that's why we do it, right? That's why we, we collect the things that we collect. It's not necessarily, um, about making money always, you know, when we were kids, we probably thought this baseball card collection would pay off one day, but you know, realistically, as you look back at it as an adult or you start a collection as an adult, um, 
it's just fun to, to reminisce and it, it, it kind of helps you jog that memory a little bit. So when I was in college, um, ballpark at Arlington had a shop that sold, um, they called the Cooperstown collection. If you can imagine this $20 a hat for fitted caps, you know, and they had everything in there and it's like, Oh man, I would, you know, pay all kinds of money for you know that that place to be open again but um one of the things i stumbled on too is i don't know if you've heard of this company ebbetsfield flannels i have not no uh that is one to kind of look into because what they do is they sell uh they sell mainly minor league jerseys but they also have negro league they have um like some of like the japan um some of the you know the international league stuff like, uh, like the Mexican leagues and things like that, but just collecting because they'll have specific jerseys. So like, for instance, I have, uh, Willie Mays's Minneapolis Millers shirt, which looks exactly like this is giants colors. And it was, it was his 1951, because uh, he opened the season in Minneapolis. In fact, he was hitting over 400 when they called him up. So I have that one. I have uh, Duke Snyder's Fort Worth Star, uh, Fort Worth Cats jersey. And then here's where I'm going to cheat a little bit. I got one that's the Black Yankees, but it's just a Yankees jersey, and it has Joe DiMaggio's number. So I could sit there and say, like, you know, those three famous center fielders that Paul played in New York at the same time, I've got all their jerseys. I mean, it's a a neat thing, but I've, like, I've started collecting Pacific Coast League. So I got, like, Seattle Rainiers. I've got the San Francisco Seals. I've got, you know, uh, Oakland Oaks. So, you know, I got a lot, you know, a lot of those different jerseys and they're cool. But the one that I wear, and this still pisses my daughter off to no end. She still loves to dress up for Halloween. I wear the same thing every year. I wear the New York Knights, number nine. You know which one I'm referring to, right? That's a Roy Hobbs jersey. So, yeah, I got the Roy Hobbs. I got the New York Knights undershirt. I got a New York Knights hat, so I can. Uh, I mean, I don't have the jersey pants, obviously, but uh, I could. I go as Roy Hobbs, and they let us dress up for schools. Like this is a chance for me to wear uh, my, you know, this jersey to school as a, you know, as an outfit. And when people question me on it, I'll just sit there and say, and they say "So what's your, you know, what's your name, Roy Hobbs?" And then what do you say then? Walking down the street, there goes Roy Hobbs. The best there ever was. But if you could have one jersey right now, like one minor league or former team that's not around anymore, who are you going for? Oh, not around. Oh, I got one. I honestly, I'd want the Portland Mavericks, oh. which was which was Bing Russell's team, the the one that they did the battered bastards of baseball about. Like that team reignited independent baseball Uh, yeah there was okay so when we went to camden yards uh we we and and there's a funny story here we went to one game at camden yards and this was 
this was pre-pandemic. So this was 2019. Um, And that was our summer vacation. We went to Washington, D.C. We took the train down to Baltimore, took an Uber back. And, you know, the Orioles up until last year were just absolute train wreck. And so there's like 3,000 fans in attendance. Um, And we kind of gave everybody a budget. Uh, So my daughter bought a headband. Uh, I bought a cap, but you know, I've, I've, I've got like three or four Orioles caps now. So it's just different ones, but I saw a Babe Ruth Baltimore Orioles Jersey, you know, for when he was in the minors. That's and a pretty were, dope one. They're selling it for 300 bucks. And it's like, I can't, I can't justify this, but you know, if I had been single, it would have been like, you know, they, yeah, they also had a Brooks Robinson one that would have been pretty cool too. Um, but yeah, that, uh, that was, yeah, that was the one, but she, uh, and got on the jumbotron because they have a Baltimore Orioles fan of the game and she was doing some kind of dance with the Orioles headband and they were desperate to get anybody doing anything. She came in second for the fan of the game. So, you know, and we're not even fans of the Orioles, obviously. Uh, but here's, you know, you know how, and in a, a funny side story though, you know how seventh inning, you had the seventh inning stretch song and then every town has its own, uh, song afterwards. Yeah. Do you know what Baltimore's is? I, I don't even know if I'd have a good guess. I don't know. It is John Denver's Thank God I'm a Country Boy. For because- Baltimore? From Baltimore. See, Baltimore, because they had a Civil War Do you know museum. Billy Martin got fired over that song? I did not, but he... Uh, he got fired they, for the Rangers because he demanded that they play that song, and the owner told him to stop playing it, and Billy Martin called up to the to the press box and said, play, I'm a country boy! And so then right after the game, he got fucking shit canned. Uh, so, um, yeah, they, they have a Civil War museum there in Baltimore. And the whole thing, and they're bragging about this. They really, really, really wanted to be a rebel state. But they said Lincoln wouldn't allow it. And I'm just sitting here going like, okay, you're bragging about this? And then y'all think y'all are country? Really? You know? So, yeah, and I know, uh, obviously, I think nothing beats Sweet Caroline in Boston. I mean, I don't just, know. I'm uh, partial to, I'm partial deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, yeah, stretch. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good one. And I know uh, the Rangers. I, I can't remember what they were doing at the ballpark. Or like, I haven't been to a game in the new stadium yet. Um, but they used to do. It's okay. Uh, it's it's they, it literally is the best way to describe it is okay. It is literally just one giant corporate billboard after another. Like that is like what a, the new stadium is. It looks like a factory on the outside. Um, I mean, the seats are comfortable. It's air conditioned. It's better than the old stadium. It's just like there's no I character. Like, there's no I like, character. I actually like that the old stadium. I know it got hot. That's why I didn't like it. It was terrible. But I actually saw a game at Old Arlington Stadium my freshman year in college, and that place was a dump. And you know, as as long you know, so we're at this game, right? It was me and my college roommate, and I'm watching these guys. And they keep trying to start the wave. 
and it dies before even we're in the outfield. It dies before it even leads the outfield. And they're cheering, doing this standing ovation. They keep doing it and they keep cheering. And I'm like, what the hell? And I look over and there's this one girl that when she, you know, when she, you know, does the wave, that's when they start cheering. And it's this fraternity of guys from North Texas, uh, North Texas uh, State University. And so the guy ends up leaving with his girlfriend, looking all pissed off. But Mike's sitting there thinking, what is he going to do? Take on the whole fraternity? You know, so that that was our experience. I, I remember watching, uh, that was Pudge Rodriguez, you know, back, uh, Oda B. McDowell, back those days. Man, that Rangers team was, was brutal, but... I think it might have even been Pete O'Brien might have been on that team. It just a, it, it was rough, but, um, but yeah, the jerseys, yeah, uh, Evansfield flannels. You need to check them out. The uh, the jerseys get pretty costly, but you know, occasionally they do run sales. Um, they also have started doing hoodies, and so I have a San Francisco Seals hoodie that will be coming on our vacation with me because uh, we're going to be going an Alaskan cruise, and so. Uh, I'm going to need to be warm and nothing says warm like a San Francisco seals hoodie. There you go. I don't know. Maybe have, have you heard the story of like the salt Lake bees? That's another good. Yeah. Another that, they good were one. part of the Pacific coast league. Uh, there were the hall. There was the Hollywood stars, the Hawaii, Hawaii had a team. There's some cocaine things going. I mean, it was, it's a fun, I'll send you a podcast on them. It's a fun Fun team. Uh, I mean, I can't remember what was the the pirates. The pirates when their mascot was selling cocaine to the whole to the whole team was a pretty great uh, story as well. Where the pi- the pirates mascot literally got arrested because he was the cocaine dealer to the, to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, yeah, like uh, and they, they just did the anniversary of Doc Ellis's no hitter, which where he was high on LSD. Yeah, there's and a he, great documentary on that. Uh, yeah, because they they were going through what he was, you know visually seeing and, and and i don't know even know how he managed to even figure that out but you know what's so funny is that book you know speaking of minor league baseball uh baseball's dynasties by rob nyer and eddie epstein what i really loved about that book is that they would go into depth about how each team was built and so like those uh, Philadelphia athletics teams from the late twenties and early thirties, they were pretty much almost, you know, shipped straight from the Baltimore, from Baltimore Orioles who were in the American association. And those are back, they were independent. And so you're not, you know, they're not an affiliate. So they're just flat out selling guys. So, uh, lefty Grove, if you look at his whole career, if you like, if you look at minor league plus major league, he probably would have come up about at least two or three years earlier had he been an affiliated ball. But the uh, the Baltimore Orioles were just driving his price up. And so, you know, they end up selling him to the A's, you know, Connie Mack for like 250 grand or something like that, which back in those days is a huge amount of money. And so that's how the Orioles did it is that, you know, their teams, they would go like 120 and 30 in a 150 game schedule. I mean, they were just absolutely mowing through. They, they were probably better than, you know, probably half the major leagues. Uh, but there, there's a lot of guys. And, and so it's fascinating reading those backstories because you get to see, 
you know, other parts of the game. Um, and that's where the Pacific Coast League comes in. Cause like uh, Joe DiMaggio, uh, before his 56 game streak in 1941 has won over 60 games in San Francisco. Um, so, I mean, he probably would have come up two or three years earlier if it, you know, if he had been an affiliated ball. I'm glad you brought up the A's because I want to talk about them tonight. The A's fans, um, this is we're recording on Tuesday. They did what was called a reverse boycott, Scott. They got almost 28,000 fans, uh, at the A's game tonight. As it was announced that the team, you know, the, the money has been secured to move to Vegas and all that. They wanted to show that the city of Oakland is not the problem. They wanted to show, at least from a fan's perspective, we still support this team. And some of the clips are absolutely fantastic because they have a, a moment of silence, you know, to honor the 55 years of Oakland baseball uh, in the community and the whole team in the whole stadium starts chanting, sell the team. And then another point, they, uh, they start yelling, um, fuck John Fisher. I, like the whole stadium's just doing it, man. And good for Oakland, you know, because they really are getting screwed here. There's not many cities in the United States that understand what it's like to lose a professional sports team. Sadly, you know, Houston is, is, is one of those cities, you know, we lost the Oilers and I, I remember it. I very much remember it as a kid, you know, going to an Oilers game and when I'm young at the dome and then just not having an NFL team for years. And I'm sure you probably remember it even more as, as someone who was more established in life, but yeah. it's the most un fair thing to the fans and especially in Oakland they the A's have fans they just shit on them on a regular basis that park is just an absolute embarrassment it's a joke it's a it's joke an absolute embarrassment i mean you have sewage backing up in in, in the locker rooms i mean they they were making fun of it in moneyball where you know both the book and the movie the players had to buy their soda I mean, it was just, it was just a ridiculous, you know, and, and they've actually scratched out a few wins here and there. And so the last time I looked at their record, they were 16 and 50. Uh, granted, that was probably a couple of days ago. So I don't know. Yeah. And I just saw just before we they came. They just won another series. I think they won like eight in a row or something like that. They're on a win streak right now. Uh, I saw before, uh, before we came on air. The Nevada State Senate approved the funding. I think it's going to the State Assembly, and as soon as the State Assembly approves it, it's done. And, yeah, I'm with you on this one. And, and, and you could sit there and you could claim that maybe Oakland has some tie to the Golden State Warriors. Um, that's not where the arena is. But I guess, you know, that's where um, – you know, that's where they're at. And, you know, maybe they can, you know, come across the Golden Gate Bridge and watch San Francisco Giants baseball. But, and you know this, being in Texas, did you ever root for the Rangers at any point? Uh, one World Series. They're the Texas team playing against the Cardinals, and I hate the Cardinals as an Astros fan growing up. So oh. I did root for the Rangers one time. You know, what's funny about that is that going back to the baseball card thing, and this is where you get ties in on personal ties. Um, I have a 1960 Stan Musial. It's probably my most, you know, my card's worth the most amount of money, actually, when you think about it. And I have it because Stan Musial was my dad's favorite player. Um, the 
the well the Colt forty fives. The Colt forty fives would have come into existence when he was already out of high school. So he grew up a Houston Buffs fan. The Houston Buffs were a affiliate of the Cardinals. So he grew up a Cardinals fan. And so because he grew up a Cardinals fan, he's telling me all kinds of stay usual stories, you know, when I was growing up. Um, like my favorite one was when uh, Stay Usual hit a 2,000-mile home run. I don't know if you've heard about this one. No, but I'm assuming it's like the 10 Cup 7-iron challenge where it keeps on going on something else down the road. Uh, in this case, a train. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, um, I love that part of 10 Cup. Still going. I hit the seven yeah. like Jay Lee hits the three. <laughs> Two twenty six, cut it off the toe. <laughs> I love what he's sitting. I, yeah, I love what he's sitting there, just like, well, what was my favorite shot? Was it the seven iron on thirteen, or maybe the seven iron for the bunker on fifteen, or I don't know, could have been That's the seven iron on eighteen. Although the bunker shot on seventeen, which my recollection was the, the seven, seven iron. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. Um, and then David Sims walks up and he just asks the one question everyone wants to know. Why were you only using your seven iron, you dumb fuck? <laughs> it never occurred to me to try. You know, but um, so I, I've never had the hatred towards the Cardinals uh, that other Houston fans have had uh, because of that connection, you know, the family connection. And so um, it'll be hard for me if I ever part with that stay usual card. It's going to, it's, That'd be a hard day. Um, I got a Frank Robinson one like that. That would be tough to to separate from. Uh, and I haven't even looked at it in years, but I just remember that being like a prized. And, and that one in my Biggio autograph rookie card. Yeah. I wrote, a, I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to Craig Biggio when I was like 10 years old. Maybe a little bit older, but I remember it was right after he lost. He got second place in the gold glove to... Uh, something, something Bell. He was uh the second baseman for the Diamondbacks. David Bell. David Bell was the second baseman for the Diamondbacks at the time, and I I wrote Craig Biggio this letter saying how unfair it was. He was a better second baseman. But and you really wasn't. Him, no, but I sent him I sent him his rookie card, and you know Craig Biggio uh responded to my letter, signed the card, sent it back to me, and it took like six months, but like. Man, that was a special moment as a kid to, to have Craig Biggio respond to your letter. It's just like I could never get rid of that card. I, somewhere, I yeah, somewhere in my closet, I have a Elijah One autographed Houston Rockets cap, and I got a. I I, I need to locate it because this is kind of one of those things where you know you move and you stash stuff things and and, and but no, I I uh, I. I would root for the Rangers when I went to their games. And we went to quite a few games when I went to college up there. But asking an Oakland A's fan to root for the Giants, I would have to think is kind of the same as asking us to root for the Rangers. I, I, I think. think it's even worse. I think it's more like asking us to root for the Cowboys when when we didn't have the Texans. I, I truly think it's more akin to that, which is, in my opinion, worse. Even though it's the same cities, it's still worse. Yeah, and and uh, well, the funny thing about the Cowboys, they uh, they were it was insufferable. Like as bad as you think it is being a Texans fan or being not a Cowboys fan and living in the Metroplex, I want you to try to imagine living in the Metroplex in the late nineties. 
it was just it. They would sit there and say, they left a hole in Texas Stadium so that God could watch his Cowboys play. It's like, excuse me while I go over here and lose my lunch. That's about what it sounds like living in San Antonio when the Spurs were good. I hated it. I I hate Spurs fans. And some of my best friends are Spurs fans. And it's like, to this day, the guy's in my wedding. Love him and his wife to death. I go to visit. And it's like March. And they've got Christmas lights up that say, go Spurs, go. And I'm like, hey, man, um, what's up with the Christmas lights? He just laughs. And I go to his wife. I'm like, hey, how about you get on Brett's ass and tell him to take the Christmas lights down? She's like, take him down? Who do you think told him to put him back up? I'm just like, oh, my God. (laughs) Well, we do that. We do that with our Christmas tree. You know, it's like it takes us a while to get it down. Finally, so so it's it's the Mardi Gras tree. That's what it is. It's yeah. Uh, <laughs> just keep it, keep on. It, it's it's St. Patrick's Day tree. So, uh, <laughs> so it keeps going. But yeah, we we finally took it down. But yeah, it, it's it's about the same. And and yeah, Spurs fans, they were pretty they were pretty insufferable when I was in college because I remember going to the sports bar because we. You know, we joked about the fact at TCU back when I was there, my first couple of years, we didn't have cable. I was like, damn it, you know, people in prison have cable. You know, what the hell? Why can't we get cable in the dorms? So in order for us to watch any kind of a game, we'd have to go to the sports bar. Um, And that sports bar, unfortunately, ended up uh, burning down because they lost their liquor license and had some kind of a fire accident, which, you know... uh, Think electrical fraud. fire yeah i think insurance fraud is more likely but you know hey you guys didn't uh, have cable in the dorms not until my junior year do we have hbo it was my we, first it was my first experience with hbo because my parents would never have bought hbo and wow that was eye-opening they, they had a special movie channel that would rotate like the same three or four movies for a month now we had so it was like, hbo one HBO two, HBO like Latino least, or whatever it was. But at least you know, at least we were able like tune into like NFL games and whatnot. I mean, I remember watching the Astros. My favorite, uh, my favorite, you know, memory is sitting there watching. You remember uh, Shawan Dunstan? Yeah, absolutely. So Shawan Dunstan's playing for the Giants, and it's like the sixth inning, and he has committed his third error. I got every hat out of my closet and I started throwing it at the TV. It's a hat trick. <laughs> Three years. He finally commits four and they end up pulling him, you know, for, you know, a pinch fielder. This is the only, I've only seen that done in the major league game twice. The other time, I, I don't know if you remember Lee Stevens. No, I don't. Okay. So Lee Stevens. So if I could compare him to anybody, um, so you remember Matt Stairs? Oh, one of my favorite pinch hitters of all time. He gave you three good swings a game, and that's it. So I want you to picture Matt Stairs, except that somebody thought, let's make him a catcher. So here's Lee Stevens, and he's and I think this is he may have been this may have been with the Expos. This may how long ago this was. Playing the Astros. Are you sure you're not talking about? Uh... Matthew LaCroix, the one where Frank Robinson is in tears over pulling him out when they kept stealing bases on him. I thought it was Ste- I thought it was Stevens they pulled. Yeah, I'm watching the uh the clip here. I thought it was Matthew was it LaCroix. LaCroix. Was it LaCroix? 
Yeah, it was Matt LaCroix. But that's the Astros just kept stealing base after yeah, base. Yeah, it was like six or seven steals, and then finally, you know, he pulls them. Yeah, that that I thought it was Stevens for some, but maybe Stevens also got pulled in a different one. But um, I remember watching that game, and then Frank Thomas cried in the post game press conference. Oh yeah, bad for the guy. Oh yeah, yeah, he did. You know, Frank Robinson was a good guy. Oh yeah, uh, and, well, first and, player to win MVP in both leagues. Yeah, and first black manager, I think. Because he was a player I manager. You're correct on that as well. Player manager with the Indians, if I recall correctly. Um, see, folks, this is where baseball cards get you. Uh, baseball cards get you that you know attachment to history, and you, you kind of learn these different things. And that's kind of where we are with the collectibles and and that sort of thing. Um, I guess. Let's see. I don't know if you had any uh, any new thoughts on live, you know, it's now that you've had a week to kind of digest it. Well, you know, Kepka said something interesting today at his press conference. He ends it with, I'll see you guys at the travelers next week, which is the next PGA tournament after, um, this event, the USG open. So there's just so, so much up in the air. I, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I, I did just see Jay Monahan's in the hospital right now with a severe medical incident. Um, so we'll see what's going to happen there. And then also, the United States Justice Department is opening an investigation into the merger, uh, um, and that's going to that. be really, really that's going to be key because we don't allow monopolies, right? So if you have one company that literally owns all the professional golf, I, I don't see how that passes legally. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm kind of have misgivings about that because to me, there are so many mergers that have probably damaged so many more people because, you know, I love Who's that jackass on um, Fox business? Who's all uh, Kramer. I, I don't all, watch anything Fox at this point, but yeah, I think you're right. The guy, but he's just the one is he's uh, hitting all the buttons and going like, I, oh, think he's on, I thought he was on CNBC. May, I don't know, but merger Monday. And he's just getting excited about all these mergers. Like you realize how many people just lost their job. I said, that's, you know, which I'm going to, uh, I'm fast forwarding. I'm, I'll get to my scumbag here, you know, fairly soon we get to that portion. So I want to hold that thought. But yeah, with, with golf, I, I mean, the Justice Department, yeah, sure. You know, let's look, make sure there's no uh, funny you know business going on. But maybe let's look a little bit closer at some of these other mergers that are happening in business too. Absolutely. And you know, while we're here on the topic of golf, Scott, I do want to talk a little bit more about, you know, the U.S. Open this week. Um, you know, what are you, who, who's your guys coming in? Who are you, who are you watching? Um, you know, Phil Mickelson's a, a U.S. Open win away from a career grand slam. Kepka's playing great golf. Um, you know, Patrick Reed, even though I don't like him, has quietly put together some nice finishes in the first two majors. Um, you know, a guy that I really like, Max Homa. Uh, set a course record when he played at LA Country Club for the NCAA Finals. So, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts going into the tournament, Scott? What do you uh, expect to see play out? Well, I'm going to remind everybody because I can do this this week and this week only that I was the one that picked John Rahm for the Masters. Um, and as much as I would love to pick him, I just don't see the U S open is his event. I've always seen the U S open as 
not I, I think it's the hardest one for a distance player to win. I'm not saying they can't win. I think that, you know, if you have distance and you can hit straight, you can play anywhere. But that's the hardest thing because you got to keep it in the fairway because as Tim mentioned earlier in the episode, you're going into rough, you're chipping out. You're getting bogey, you know, probably on that hole. So I, I like, you know, some of the straighter knockers. I, I don't, you know, I'm trying to think who who that might be. Um, well, just while you think, just to talk a little bit about this course while you're thinking, because one of the things that you had talked about when you're describing a good golf course, right, is there needs to be a collection of holes. There needs to be your scoring holes, holes you can go get. There needs to be the ones that fight for par. And, and I, I think this this is going to be one of the most exciting U.S. Opens we've seen in a long time. There's there's drivable par fours distance-wise, but the hazards around them are so ridiculous that, that guys like John Rahm are saying this is four straight layups. But then you've got someone like JT saying, I don't see what the layup shot would be. I'm going to go ahead and send it. Um, there's an 80-yard wide fairway, but if you land it outside of this 120-yard spot, it will not stay in the fairway. It's going to bury in the rough. And so there's so many little subtleties to this course. Um, you know, this kind of reminds Bryson won a U.S. Open by hitting it as far as he could and chopping it out of the rough. So you know, this might be a tournament where someone like Rory takes a similar strategy of, I just got to bomb it because it's just too hard to keep it in the fairway anyway. If I'm hitting from the rough from 200, I might as well hit from 150. Okay, so looking at uh, looking at Vegas Insider, and here are their odds. Uh, Scotty Scheffler is currently the favorite. Yeah, he's playing. His, his strokes gained against the field is like three and a half strokes gained from tee to green against the rest of the field right now. It's unbelievable. Plus 600. Uh, John Rahm, plus 900. Then you got a two-way tie with Rory and Brooks Kapka at 1,100. You've got Patrick Cantley at 1,400. Uh, Victor Hovland, 1,600. Uh, Xander Scheffler, 2,000. Uh, and then, you know, kind of we got a kind of a group of guys at like 2,500 to 3,000. You know, kind of a long list of, of people there. So out of that group, I'll, I'm just going to – I'll throw it uh, – I'm rooting for Rory, I'll say. I th- I'd like to see Rory win one. He, it's, it's been a while for him, and I think, you know, he got so much um, so much flack for coming out hot against Liv. And, and that uh, in particular, he just – uh, he got crapped on. So, I, I, you know, from a sentimental uh, perspective, I'd like to see him take it. Yeah, absolutely. It would be it would be great to see Roy get on the major. Really would. Um, do you think there's any way Phil contends in this one? You know, we've seen – we saw the tie for second at the Masters, but Augusta is such a – a walk down memory lane for these golfers that when you know where to hit it, it's a lot easier. Um, we saw Phil win a PGA championship a couple of years ago. Is there any chance in your mind for Phil to win a U.S. Open or um, is Phil just going to get in his own way at some point? I am looking at the odds and I am scrolling. I hadn't seen him yet. Um, and I'm down into the 60,000 range. So I think for uh, for those of y'all who are um, 
I think if you bet a hundred dollars, you win, you know, that much, you know, that much money. So, you know, he's, it looks like he's a long bet. You know, if you want to bet money on that, you know, it's a huge return. I don't know. Phil, I just don't think the U S open the fact that he's never won one is kind of the clue there. He's, he's always been, you know, a creative guy around the greens. He's always been long, just not particularly accurate. And the U S open is not, you, you need to be accurate. You need to be in the fairway. You need to be hitting to certain spots in the fairway as Tim was alluding to earlier. Um, you need to be hitting on the certain spots of greens because the greens you're always, you know, super quick uh, at the U.S. Open. Uh, did I ever tell you about what Lee Trevino did at Wingfoot? Possibly, but you might want to remind us. So this is back in the 70s. He goes out and he starts putting in the parking lot. And so the reporters, you know, go out there and they say, like, you know, what the hell are you doing? Why are you putting out here? He says, this is the only place I could find that could simulate the speed of the greens. And he got a little fine for that one, but, you know, got that one. <laughs> he got in a good one. Um, Lee Trevino is one of my favorite people ever. Like when he said he was first getting started as a pro, he was outside uh, mowing his lawn. And he said that somebody came by and said, hey, how much do you charge to mow lawns? You know, or how much is the uh, woman at the, this house paying you to, to mow her lawn? He says, well, she's not paying me anything, but she lets me sleep with her. So, yeah, I got, uh, I've always loved Lee Trevino. Um, and he's just fantastic in Happy Gilmore. Like, there was just, <laughs> I don't know how it came up, but my wife and I were sitting there somehow joking about Happy Gilmore. I'm like, let's watch Happy Gilmore. It's been 10 years since I've sat down and watched that movie. And there are just so many times where something happens and it pans to Lee Trevino and he just starts shaking his head no and happy or whatever it was. It's just like, you nailed it, Lee. You absolutely, you absolutely nailed it. You know, I actually, you know, when I get on the course, I still do the Shooter McGavin. Where, you know, if I nail like a 30, shooter. 40 foot choke on that. Nine iron, huh? You're fired. <laughs> And I love, you know, he was just so over the top. I love that guy. I can uh, quote that. Like, literally, I, I think my wife was getting so annoyed with me because I am reciting the actor's lines right before they're supposed to say it with, with pretty regularity. Is Like, the, my favorite line is, like, I had to play the ball off Frankenstein's fat foot, play the ball as it lies. And it's <laughs> like, I, I can't. It's just, it's a classic. But, yeah, Lee Trevino steals the show in Happy Gilmore. Well, you realize who the actor was that played, you know, the, the big guy. He was the one that I played did. Jaws in two different James Bond films. Okay. There so he is the only, uh, to my knowledge, the only henchman to survive a James Bond film. Because, you know, you have, you have like the main villain. Right. And you have the main villain's enforcer. He's called him a henchman. He, and he actually made it and he actually turned, and so he actually survived both Bond films. It was a. I like odd of, job. I like odd job with the hat. Yeah, or or a random task with the shoe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that uh, who throws a shoe? Honestly, 
That was that was a great Austin was, Powers moment where he gets hit in the face with a shoe, and he's like, "What kind of person throws a shoe?" <laughs> um, we're sitting. Uh, uh, we went to the Galleria because my daughter loves to go. Uh, her big request every Christmas season is go to the Galleria, so she can ice skate, and she, you know we can just go to shops. I guess that she can't. And of course, up until this year, she couldn't drive, so she has no idea how much of a hassle it is to drive to the gallery. I have to remind her every year, but there was a, there's a sports apparel shop in there. They had a Bobby Boucher Jersey. Ooh, I almost got mud it. Dog. He had a mud yeah. dogs. Yeah. The mud dogs. I almost got it, but I couldn't, it was like over a hundred bucks. It's like, I can't do this. You know, my wife bought her sister, uh, a Jersey from a fictional TV show called one tree Hill. And she got him, got her like the, oh. got, jersey uh i've looked into getting my brother he really wants an adam banks hawks jersey from the oh. Mighty Ducks. he doesn't want the ducks one he wants them when he's on the hawks um that might take some doing i don't know but they're uh, out there no they're out there they're just not cheap but by yeah bobby boucher had you know which i can quote in well and and janet's from louisiana though you you can't tell from her voice because she's moved all around but yeah it Every time we've watched that movie, she just starts to cringe and and, and kind of curse under her breath because um, of you know how they make fun of Cajuns. Uh, so we, I, I don't watch that movie around her, but it, it's, it's a still, classic though. I love, I love. Uh, I love the quarterback gets hit. You who dare? Who dare? <laughs> I love the coach who's, who comes in. He's like, yeah, you oh, know, the when, farmer- I was, when I was growing up, my. Uh, my dad told me not to get a, a tattoo of Henley Winkler on my ass, but uh, <laughs> my daddy don't know to hurt him. He's got the picture of the fawns right there on his ass. And it is Henry Winkler. It is Henry Winkler. Yeah, that's the best part. Then you had that, that farmer that nobody could understand. It's like a worse boom hour. <laughs> well, you know, the whole thing is with boom hour, when you watch those, you can understand about every third word. Be, you know, done that lug nut, you, you know, done, done that hammer, you know, you're like, wait a minute. I understood part of that. I know some of these words. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, uh, yeah, the, the Adam Sandlers are, are usually guilty pleasures. Definitely. Yeah. It, but he's gotten so weird lately. Um, after grown ups, the first grown ups, I'm out. Even that one's tough, but it's still got some funny moments. But uh, Grown Ups 2 sucked. Jack and Jill sucked. Uh, the one, actually, the one with him and um, Jennifer Aniston, where they're like on vacation, he turns into like a spy, is, is enjoyable. Some of the, the Netflix thing, ones are okay. Well, the thing is, is that he's trying, he, uh, he and, and Jim Carrey, the same, they're trying to have Tom Hanks' career where they, they switch, you know, from comedy to, to serious actor. And that's just a hard transition. You yeah. Know? And I, and I don't know. I mean, Jim Carrey's, you know, actually some serious roles that were, you know, like pretty good. The Majestic was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it was a good film, but it just didn't get the – and the Truman Show was also kind of, you know. Oh, I love that. I love the Truman oh, Show. Good morning. But, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. And, they, yeah, they – but it just didn't, you know, it didn't catch, you know, for whatever reason. Um, so real quick, Scott, before we hop into Scumbags um, – do you, have you been watching any of the, the the college baseball World Series tournament? I've been following my Horn Frogs. So I don't know if you saw how Texas lost last night, 
but um, I heard they lost. Yeah, absolutely heartbreaking for UT fans. A can of corn fly ball to right center field. They're playing in in uh, at Stanford. It gets lost in the haze and the lights. Ball drops. Winning run scores. That's it. But to get Stanford to that game, the day before, Quinn Matthews threw a complete game, 16 strikeout on 156 pitches. Yeah, I heard. I I don't know how I feel about this one, right? Because the college guys, they throw less throughout the year, so it's not like Verlander going out and throwing 156. But also, it's a kid. This is a kid who just threw 156 fucking pitches. Like, that's not healthy. I saw that there was a huge debate on Twitter, um, and I actually followed that. And and the thing is, because uh, I can't remember who the ESPN guy was tracking, you know, just the number of games at the major league level that anybody's cleared one thirty. I don't know that you can get to one fifty. Um, was you that remember like, Johan Santana? Yeah, that's, no what was, that's what I was. It destroyed that, him. He was never the same after that. Yeah, and I think. The problem is with your college guys is honestly, do they care whether their guys get drafted? Do they? I mean, yes and no, right? Because as a coach, it's a recruitment tool to say, hey, I've gotten all these guys in the big leagues and here's where my pitchers are now. And and they would credit, you know, our staff with getting a major league ready. Like that's certainly part of recruiting, but also national championship brings speak louder than anything else too. Because I didn't think about – because I didn't even think about this. Last time I went to TCU, they have a, a little museum that they've built uh, in the basketball arena. And uh, in there, I see Jake Arietta Cy Young Award. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's a horn frog. You know, I'd forgotten about that. And so, you know, there's all these guys. Like, I know Matt Carpenter is a you know famous frog. And, you know, there's kind of some other, you know, a few other guys that, you know, kind of, you know, made it. Um, it was kind of, I don't know if you saw what happened with, uh, with TCU, uh, how they ended up getting the home series. I they did see su- that. Yeah. they weren't supposed to. Because um, of the Special Olympics booked all the hotel rooms. Well, what was really cool is that, uh, TCU and their fans stood up, um, and they made a huge donation to the Special Olympics. Because, I mean, it, they, they, you know, of course, they broke attendance records. Like we had nine thousand people in attendance uh, during, you know, the super regional. We never come anywhere close. I mean, they're they're packed in the outfield. They don't have any seats, so it was really cool to see. Um, and I don't know. Do you know who the head coach is of TCU? You has a name you might recognize. Kirk Sarlos. Uh. Oh, okay. Former Astro starting pitcher Kirk Sarlos. He that's, was the, that's a that's a blast from the past, man. Yeah, he was the pitching coach for a few years, and then Schaffsnagel left and went to A and M, where he uh, is chronically underachieved. And here we are back in the College World Series. So last I time we were, got to meet a former Astros pitcher or dump of a pitcher woody williams was the uh was the san jack baseball coach and they played at our stadium and i got to got to because he i remember i was pumped when we signed woody williams he was coming to the cardinals and he sucked yeah that was rough but But, yeah yeah. that's a cool that's a that's a throwback one well the worst and, and the worst performance i've ever seen from a free agent pitcher but also in the game 
Uh, do you remember a guy named Jim Clancy? No, I don't. Okay, so here's here's the Jim Clancy story. In 1988, the Houston Astros are paying Nolan Ryan a cool $1 million a year. Correct. One, Who's one the first million, million dollar a year player? So what does he want? He just wants the same money. He led the league in strikeouts in 1988. 87, he wins the ERA title and goes 7-16. Are you talking about the GM who asked him to take a pay cut? Is that who you're talking that about be, right now? That would be the owner. John C. McMullen. Okay. So now, now keep in mind the the money that I'm I'm calling here, right? So they offer him five hundred thousand. Nolan Ryan goes like, I'm not doing that. Goes up to Texas, and of course, everything else is history. They end up paying Jim Clancy like two or three million dollars a year. He was pitching for Toronto. He was okay. It's like a third or fourth starter. He comes to Houston and his ERA balloons to almost six. So we're, we're sitting there watching this game. Um, we're watching it at the Dome. It's Jim Clancy. It's the second inning and it's already 10 to fucking one. And Jim Clancy's given up like every, every run. So it's like when Tim Redding used to pitch, he got fucking lit up all the time. And he comes, so here comes Danny Darwin. Uh, now, the, the two things that I, you know, that I remember about this game is, number one, we're in the third inning and we're hearing Neil Diamond's Kentucky Woman on the, uh, you know, being played. And I said, this is what we call the blowout playlist. I mean, I remember uh, going to Mavericks games and they would play Kodachromi, you know, by Paul Simon and Garfunkel. They're like, yeah, there's your blowout playlist. Danny Darwin, I think the fifth or sixth inning, plunks Spike Owen. Spike Owen's having none of it, charges the mound, and we have a melee. So I got to watch us lose 10 to 1, but I saw my first and only fight at a major league game for that one. And I loved when, when you know, when Spike Owen's coming to the mound, Danny Darwin just throws down his gloves and says, come on. Come on. It was almost as bad as, you know, the Nolan Ryan, Robin Ventura. You know, I know you've seen footage of that. Everybody's seen footage of that. They had a I had that poster in my room growing up of Nolan wiping the blood off his face. Although they, they, well, the one where he's like sitting there, he holds his head, just punching him. And it's like they had to put, um, have you ever seen any of the uh, YouTube videos from Urinating Tree? No, I don't think so. So you got to look up Urinating Tree because they did a history, a legacy of failure, the history of the Rangers. He gets a few details wrong, but it's just damn hilarious. I mean, he just, you know, he just roasts them. And he's got a series of these. Like he roasts the Pirates. He roasts, uh, I think he may have roasted the Astros at some point, but like he roasts some football teams. He, he but yeah, I mean, the, the Rangers one, legacy of failure. Oh my God. It, it, it's like about 20 minutes, but it's, it's worth every minute watching that thing. And so he said, like, put a statue of this in front of your stadium for crying out loud. It's your best moment. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, actually, it's kind of true. All right. So we've kind of swapped stories here. You have any sports scumbags for us? 
Ah, sorry. I had myself muted there. All right, Scott. My first scumbag. Just to preface this. 9 of 13 Astros uh, with at least 30 plate appearances have a weighted runs created more than 100. Our team weighted runs created is 98. Just for a quick reference, the Yankees only have 6 of 17 hitters with a weighted runs created of at least 100. Dusty Baker is simply not putting the best players in the lineup all the time. We can't keep doing this. Everybody gets a day off bullshit. You talked about how frustrating it was when you were a kid and it was Sundays were just everybody's day off. Well, what the hell are we doing here? Dusty Baker and his lineups are killing me. And then you get the classic when asked about Jordan today, said he wouldn't violate HIPAA and he couldn't give us any updates on Jordan because it's a HIPAA violation. Come on, Dusty. Like, it was funny the first time, but now it's just really fucking annoying where we can't get any updates on players and you joke that it's a HIPAA violation. You got us the ring last year, but I, I just cannot stand the way that he is constantly not putting our best lineup out there. Well, Dubon is hot. Dubon is hot. And then he gets four days off in a row. For what fucking reason? I don't know. Dubon gets back in the lineup, hits a home run today. I bet money Dubon does not play tomorrow. <sighs> That's number one. I'll let you go, and we come back for number two. Okay, so my big uh, sports scumbag is the publication, I guess we'll say formally known as The Athletic. I guess they are still called the athletic, but they're not. So here's here's what the athletic was was a whole all about, right? The athletic was supposed to be started as a venture where it was a national product, but they would have a beat writer for every single team. So you could have the national perspective, and you could have the local perspective. They get bought out by the New York Times which I guess is what every startup's goal is, is that your, your, your goal is to get bought out by some bigger conglomerate. And so what happens? They laid off some of their best people. They're not going to cover every team. Like teams like Pirates, eh, we don't need to cover them. Uh, teams like maybe the Sacramento Kings, eh, we don't need to cover them. Uh, and I, and I doubt that you'll probably hear, you know, get much coverage on your, you know, Houston Rockets, Astros and Texans, you know, from the athletic anyway. And it's really rough, you know, for those guys and, and one, and, and somebody came on Twitter and they basically said, listen, I didn't go to the athletic because I knew most of these things last five or six years and I didn't want to relocate to New York for five or six years. And it ended up being less. Ended up lasting less. And so why is the athletic cutting these people? Is it because they're doing a bad job? No. It's the bottom line. They're not making enough of a profit. Which, you know, I've never subscribed to the athletic. And real quick, too. You said it right. They're not making enough of a profit. They're still making a fucking profit. Just not enough money. And that's what ESPN has done this to. So I'm not, I'm not going to, the four letter network doesn't get, you know, so what does ESPN do? ESPN is paying Pat McAfee, was it like $42 million or something like that? Um, but they're going to lay it's off a big deal, but they're going to lay off a bunch, you know, a bunch of these smaller guys that, you know, are probably doing a hell of a job. And the thing is, they're the ones running down these stories that you get to report on. 
I mean, that's the crazy thing. I mean, for every Adam Schefter, for every Chris Mortensen, for every one of those guys, there's, you know, somebody who's doing the actual leck work, running these things down. I mean, that's where real journalism is at. And, you know, I've heard this described before, you know, obviously this is not the political show, but, you know, when you look at it, the problem that you're going to have is that when you stop covering local things, that's when things start to go awry. We don't send a reporter to that school board meeting. That's when those school board members are going to start, you know, feeling frisky uh, and you know doing some things that, you know, they didn't think they would be able to do, you know, when the press was actually covering them and could be reported in a newspaper. And it's the same thing with these teams. You know, some of these teams, you know, getting by with, you know, Tim is absolutely right about Dusty Baker and the whole of this BS of, well, I'm not going to violate HIPAA law or, you know, uh, Lance McCullers, it's not a setback, but well, he's not going to pitch until August, two years in a row. What the hell? What are we doing? Now, in terms of your lineups, I, you know, I, I, there's a message board I'm, I'm a member of, and this guy came on today that, Surely Dana Brown would trade for a better catcher and Dusty Baker would have to play him, right? Because, you know, technically Dana Brown's his boss. I'm like, uh, not really, dude. <laughs> I mean, James Click was supposedly his boss. And not only did he not play his catcher, he made a deal for another catcher that Dusty Baker vetoed. So who's really in charge here? And, you know, Dusty's a good dude. And, and and I think, you know, he's he's good, you know, with the clubhouse. He's good with, you know, the guys. He's um, I do think there's some, you know, guys that we can look at who we could sit there and say have definitely gotten better because Dusty Baker was there. I think Frommer Valdez, Valdez is one of them. I think it's not a coincidence that he was there in 2020 and Frommer Valdez came of age in 2020. I, I'd, I'd really believe it. But yeah, as far as the athletics concerned, it was a great independent source to get local news and national news at the same time. Not anymore. Not always scaling back. Yeah, it's, it's at the detriment of the fans. It really is. Um, I never subscribed to the athletic personally, but I, I read many of articles I got posted you know, for free and they did a great job. And it was, you know, growing up, I don't know if it was the same for you, but like, I remember watching sports center every morning as a kid growing up. And if again, if they showed an Astros highlight, it was one of the last ones of the show every single time. And we weren't, it wasn't the bad years yet. We're in the middle of the BGO Bagwell time period. They just didn't talk about Houston sports. And so that was how I grew up. So the idea of the, Athletic or even, you know, when Comcat Sports Houston um, was the Houston Astros and Rockets channel, you had a full sports channel just covering your team, just covering your city. It was a fantastic channel. Now, when you look at the reason it failed, because Comcast had to slap their name on it, and then at and not going to carry that. But at the end of the day, you had a, an entire sports channel that covered, not, that covered nothing but Houston sports, and they just don't last. It's it's really sad because um, I think the model's there, right? Like 
Apollo Apollo Sports does a great job covering Houston. Um, Barstool's got you know different sects that cover different cities, but they're all within this big conglomerate uh, minus Apollo, which is a local one. But it's just it's really hard to do and do well in the world of capitalism where you can make the, you can make the decision of, you know, how many people are reading our Cincinnati Reds coverage? Okay. Let's, let's fire that guy. How many people are reading our, um, I don't know, our Toronto or our Minnesota Timberwolves beat coverage. Okay. We can let that guy go. And it's, it's decisions like that that are, are not seeing the, the, the end game. And it's just very short-sighted. And at the end of the day, it's it's just damaging to the fans. And I think you're right about the quality of stories that are come out. Um, I mean, I wish they would have fired the guy who interviewed Mike Fires uh, a few years before, you know, a few years ago. But at the end of the day, the Athletics the one that broke that story uh, with the Houston Astros and the sign stealing. And when you've got guys who their whole job is to to monitor that city and that team, you're going to get news. And there's going to be there's going to be less breaking stories for sure, Scott. Well, and that's Evan Drellick, who was, you know, the the guy for the Chronicle, uh, the beat, and so I think he has an axe to grind against the Astros uh, for something that happened while he was at the Chronicle. I, I couldn't tell you exactly what that is, but I do remember hearing something that you know uh, that would be responsible for that and. But really, yeah, you mentioned Sports Center. Sports Center was appointment television, uh, particularly when you had Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann on at the same time. Keith Olbermann is as tiresome as he sometimes has become in his older age as a sportscaster was just pure gold. And, you know, occasionally they would have him and Craig Kilborn on at the same time. And that was just, I mean... It was it was like sports nirvana. Um, I don't know if you were old enough to remember Craig Kilborn as a sportscaster, um, but he told some funny stories. Um, he actually played college basketball, and so he played. I th- want to say for Georgia Tech, um, but I, I may be wrong there. But his whole thing was he led the conference in turnovers. He was a point guard and led the conference in turnovers. And he says a team from Europe came over and offered him a million dollar contract. And he's like, asked him, says, have you even seen me play? He's like, you're an American. You'll average 20 points a game. Um, but he decided, you know, to go sports the other way, but he did the, they did this, you know, great commercial where they were playing in, you know, one of those, um, one of those intramural leagues where like each business has their own team. And so he's like sitting there playing with Jawan Howard and Cherokee Parks, and he's playing against all these plumbers. And this plumber says, "It's not fair! You've got ringers, you got Cherokee Parks, you got Jawan Howard." And you, and, he's, and you see like Jawan Howard set a pick, and this plumber just get annihilated. And you hear Craig Kilbar, "Defense wins championships." He said, "Play the game, plumber boy, play the game." <laughs> it was just hilarious. That sounds like a winner. Um, and my, I just want to hit the second scumbag real quick uh, before we run out of time here. Um, you know, tonight was it's Pride Month. Tonight, the Astros gave away a rainbow backpack, and the amount of visceral again on on social media. People say they're going to no longer be fans of the Astros because they're giving away a backpack. Just don't take it, or don't go to the game tonight. And then it's like, well, this is being forced on people in the organization. 
No, it's not. It's not. And there are other people. I wish you could be more like the Rangers. The Rangers aren't doing that. And then my favorite re- response to that was a combination of two tweets. One going, you mean like this? It's where the two Rangers grab each other's nuts after a home run. And then the second one was the Rangers scandal. One of the Odor brothers held down a minor leaguer and masturbated onto him. So it was like, what What about the Rangers is so great that we as an organization should strive to be like them? Get over it. It's Pride Month. Stop being a bigot. If you don't want the backpack, don't go to the game or just don't even take it. If you don't want to root for the Astros, fucking see you later. We'll still be here. We'll still be winning World Series championships. And you can go root for a lesser team. Yeah, there's these two women on there, which I uh, I don't. I usually don't like the term Karen, but they're... Uh... They're talking about Chick-fil-A no longer being the Lord's chicken. And now it's, it's just know, ridiculous. And man. now it's, you know, it's, it's woke chicken and we're not going to go there anymore. And it's like, well, okay, I guess you're we'll, lost. Chick-fil-A is great chicken. Go eat lesser like, chicken. I was like, okay, that line gets a little shorter for me. You know, thank you. Yeah. You know, the thing for me, but, and, and I, you know, and I usually haven't been a big fan of uh, Chick-fil-A's politics, but you know, it's like either, and, and, and I have a friend from school that he would ban stuff all the time and the ban would land for, for about five days. And it'd be like, like he, he banned Heinz ketchup for a while because he learned that, uh, that she was married to, to John Kerry. It's like, okay, you you could ban Heinz ketchup. You want to go with hunts? You know, you'd be my guest, but yeah, all these boycotts of things. It's just, it's just silly. You know, if you're going to allow something as stupid as a backpack affect your fandom, I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, you're not a fan in the first place, and don't let the door hit you on the way out, essentially. But that's all the time we've got here. Um, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can find me on Twitter, Tim underscore Costello. Uh, you can always find Scott on Twitter as well. S. Barzilla. All right. We appreciate everybody who joined us this week, and we look forward to getting back at you next week, hopefully after a couple of our U.S. Open predictions have come true. But we appreciate everyone who joined us, and we'll see you next time on the Snaphook. Thank you for tuning in to the Snaphook and making Scott and I a part of your week wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook. Snaphook.